Before we get to today's show, I'd like to hear from you. This show is nothing without our listeners, and we want to make sure we provide you with what you're looking for. Our mailbox is open to all suggestions. So if you have a topic you want to learn about, or a guest you want to hear from, let us know by sending us an email to jagahealthandwellness at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-G-A-H-E-A-L-T-H-N-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S at gmail.com. Now, enjoy the episode. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear, but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Jerry Olette, and I was honored to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch, with centuries of medicinal applications used by Indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession, and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show's about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom And my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places, meet the people that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Today, that person is Bev DeLonardo a master gardener from Bob Cajun, Ontario. On this week's show, we're going to learn about home gardening, how to deal with common garden pests, and how to cultivate wild plants. So join me today for another great episode, and hopefully we can inspire a few more people to live their lives under the canopy. Well, good day, everyone. Today, we have a special guest. Well, they're all special, but this one is a close person that I've been dealing with for a number of years, Bev DeLonardo. And Bev is with the King's Wharf Gardens Perennials. And Bev is a master gardener. And we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff uh, regarding plants and wild things and how you get plants to, well, we can get right into it. Bev, welcome to the program. Good morning, Jerry. How are you today? Life is good. I've already been to the airport, had my son flying out to BC <clears throat> to get him back to work. And oh, my now we're, uh, oh, yeah, it's been a busy day. Yeah. So that's a good thing. So things are good? Things are very good here. We have indication of a small amount of rain this morning, but I think it's going to hold off. Well, for a master gardener now, Bev, what is a master gardener? It's a credit that you achieve, um, uh, supported by the province of Ontario, but it's um, uh, you can acquire it either through um, University of Guelph. Um, you can also um, get it through Dalhousie University, and it's usually um, 
this is an update on Dalhousie's uh, program right now. It's a five-part program. <clears throat> you do four online courses. And then okay. your final one is uh, an in-summer, in-class summer session down in oh, um, Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Um, oh, so, and there is a fee right. per course. Okay. And so are there different levels of gardeners uh, to achieve a master or is a master, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with it, so yeah, you kind of enlighten it's, us. It's a, a specific um, level to reach. Um, okay. Of course, you've got people, many retired people take it up, um, you know, having been maybe lifelong members of horticulture societies and very interested in gardening. And that's why I got into the Master Gardener program was because I found I'd reached my limit and wasn't learning anything new. So I right. joined the local Lindsay group here. And uh, okay. we are a small a small group. But um, And what our whole mission is, I guess that's the most important thing, is that we're here for the community to answer garden questions and help with any planning or new projects they've got. So it is a volunteer group. Oh, okay, yeah, I noticed on your sign that it mentioned uh, garden questions uh, answered here and that sort of thing when uh, uh, with your business when you're up at the, the market. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could tell us a bit about uh, Kings Wharf Gardens and Perennials and just give us a little background about uh, the business you operate. Um, well, we're on a farm out south of Bob Cajun, uh, approximately 50 acres, but we only have a half acre under cultivation for garden um, vegetables and fruit. Um, We have a greenhouse, which is a a large one. So I start the season off with uh, perennials and vegetable and fruit seedlings. And and then uh, we bring product to the market, uh, fresh vegetables and fruit in season. And I also do uh, home canning. So preserves is where I am right now. We do a lot of preserves for the markets. And uh, currently, Kingsworth Gardens is at both the Lindsay Markets, and there's one on Thursday, 10 till 5, at the northwest end of Lindsay, and uh, the downtown market where I've met you on Saturday morning, yeah. 7 till 1. Saturdays. So, Bev, you mentioned that the, the size is about a half an acre you've got uh, that you produce with? For the, yes. Just the vegetables, okay. yeah. Okay, so and a lot, and that's what you bring to the market from there, or the flowers that you bring and things like that, and the plants. Um, Is that outside that half acre or more? Well, there's the greenhouse as well for the perennials. Okay, so, and how big is the greenhouse, and and how long does how how large is your greenhouse, and how when do you start operating it, and what do you do to heat it if need be, and that sort of stuff? Well, because we do perennials, we don't heat it because I don't like any soft growth on the perennials and. That way, when you take them to market, they're blooming at the time of the season than they should be. Uh, so it's 20 by 40. And right. um, we usually get it up and running the first week of April. Now, I do okay. bring some plants in from, from growers because um, there's a lot of the new plants that you find out in the market these days that they have patents on them. Eh? So you have to pay either a royalty or a patent charge to, to you know sell the plants. So. <clears throat> That really? way, yeah. That way, I always have something new for. I have a lot of customers who are always looking for the the new things. So, first week of April, and now I know I dealt with the there was the um, the there was a, an organization, a provincial organization that produced uh, 
plants like uh, flowers and poinsettias and things like that. And they always showed up. And they informed me that one, what they do is they pump a lot of carbon dioxide into the greenhouses to produce better plants. Yep. Is that something that, that a lot of people do? Or is there ways to do that, like burning a candle in there to eat up the oxygen and produce more carbon dioxide? Uh, well, I think because of where I am, I, it, I don't have an issue. Um, and right. what I'm growing, like I'm, I'm, I'm not the large commercial operators. I'm just a, you know, a home farm, small operator. So, right. um, you know, if I, if I find there's anything lacking in the plants, it indicated by, you know, color of leaves and, you know, slow growth and things like that, I'll supplement with a, a fertilizer. Um, all of our edible crops, we use natural fertilizers and like no pesticides or synthetic, right. synthetic fertilizers. Um, but in the greenhouse, I like to give my plants a good start. So I, I will use a synthetic transplant fertilizer, something with a high middle number of phosphorus. Now, as far as the air quality, not an issue for me, but I think maybe in the larger commercial operations, you, you, you would find that that would certainly speed up the process. Right. Right, yeah, because I, I found it very interesting. And then I tried to coordinate why not uh, places like uh, some of the cement plants that one of the, the byproducts is carbon dioxide is utilize that carbon dioxide to to go through greenhouses mm-hmm. so that it uh, can promote grant, uh, plant growth. But that was uh, something that fell by the wayside with those industries because they, they, a lot of them supplement and just take uh, – canisters in with carbon dioxide and and then and then they have to go in with uh, suit oxygen suits so they can breathe in a lot of them which yeah. is interesting in itself <clears throat> so and, and by the way the garlic that i had that uh, you you gave me last time the hot garlic mm-hmm. you, you produce a great garlic i find that the cloves in the garlic are about the size of your thumb so in one bud you'd get like four cloves which I find so much better than those little wee-wee things mm-hmm. where and try and cook with or do anything with it. They're so small that you end up cutting it up. But that was a really good. Is there a special way to, to get garlic so that you've got those large cloves? It's um, selection of seed is where you're going to find the larger cloves. Um, and also thyme. Garlic's an interesting right. plant. If you buy new seed to, to bring into your operation and you you know you want a new strain or something new, it takes garlic about four to five years before it actually adjusts to your soil conditions. Oh, really? And so, so the, the longer you use the same seed going back into the ground, the better your garlic gets. And so as far as seed selection, the, the bigger the piece that goes in, the bigger the pieces you're going to have on your, your garlic. Oh, so uh, roughly, and I know because, uh, what is it, music garlic, and, and there's quite a few strains. What, what strains, and do you know how many strains there are out there, roughly? Oh, no, I have no idea. I used to grow yeah, seven remember. or eight, and I'm I'm down to five now. Right, and which five do you do you grow? Well, I grow music. I have Great Northern, right. um, okay. and I have the um, Russian Red. No, sorry. Not Russian red. I call it Russian red all the time, but it's kabar, right. and it's a it's okay. a purple striped garlic, and that's relatively mm-hmm. new. So my inventory of that is small. I'm just building it up. And our biggest okay. grower, I, it's it's. I have no idea what it is. It's probably music. I probably bought the original seed thirty years ago, and okay. I've just kept it going. And so, uh, so when when you buy that and pay the royalties or whatever you call it, when you're buying those seeds. When you do it the following years, do you have to continue to pay? Not, not with garlic. Like that's no. more 
for perennial plants like the new varieties. And what you're paying okay. for is the, the development and, and all the years of work that go in developing new new varieties. So it, it has more to do with new inventory that you're introducing, you know, new new strains of things. That's where you're paying the right. royalties because they eventually run out, right? Okay. So when you're getting new seeds like that, now how and you reuse them, how many times can you reuse them? Or I thought some were, were genetic that it was only you could use it once and then you have to buy new seed. You couldn't reuse the, the seed from the, the fruits that it the plant bearing. So that that's uh, where you get into um, seeds are different than, than uh, plant tissue. Plant okay. tissue is pretty much a clone of, of the original parentage. All right. Yeah. Whereas your yeah. seeds are, um, it's like, you know, when people produce offspring, there's it's a seed. And so you okay. get a little bit of characteristics of both parents, whereas mm. is, you know, the close of garlic or, or the actual tissue that you're using. Right. It's not a new beginning. Uh, hmm. Interesting. I know, and it's different everywhere in the dark garden clubs all around. I was in, I was in Thunder Bay and we spoke about this on Saturday. This was quite a while with a friend of mine, Carl, and they were they're trying to promote monarch butterflies up in Thunder Bay, which there hasn't a lot of its main food. Well, its only food source is milkweed plants. Mm-hmm. So the people up there were 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 buying milkweed <clears throat> seeds and paying ten dollars a seed for milkweed in order to be able to grow it up there. Wow! Um, and so how? If you were to take something like milkweed, with the pods that we find just about every roadside here, how do you go about uh, taking that to try and promote growth? And do you know much about milkweed? Is it a perennial? Is it an annual? Is it? It's a, it's a definitely a perennial. Okay. And uh, it is the main food source for the the um, monarch, monarch butterfly. Monarch butterfly. Um, yep. They they're they're spread by the wind. You know, hence they've got that yep. little kite that they. Can take with them when they're we're often running finding new ground um they, i've never self like i've never sown any because it grows naturally at my place and i oh. have my spots where yeah. I, I just let it go and other, right. other spots um you know i try to pull it and keep it down or else it's, it's yeah. quite aggressive and grows quickly and will will you know crowd out yeah. neighbors and it's it's more of an aggressive thing so i, I keep it in check but as far as growing from seed, yes, um, I would I would say that you know it might need a stratification. I'd have to look Which that one, one up. Okay, what what does it might need? A, what does stratification mean? It's a freeze thaw. It's a natural cycle that uh, a lot of perennials and some annuals need in order to germinate, and okay. so um, it naturally occurs in nature you know, just by the the seed landing on the ground in the fall and then going through the winter with a nice uh, blanket of snow on it and the freezing temperatures, you know, on and off. Promote, promote and, you know, that's where the germination comes from. All plants are different. Okay, so can you duplicate that that stratification? Definitely. You so can, can you put it in the freezer, yeah. take it out, put it in the freezer? Yeah. Or fr- um, fridge, freezer. Yeah. You could, you go from, you know, depending on, you know, they're all a little bit different. Some need darkness. Right. Some some need the light to germinate. Um, hmm. 
Delphiniums is an example. They need darkness to germinate. Okay, so but, when when you say darkness, how do you mean? Well, like if you, it, if, it has to be buried in the soil, or is it just in a a dark closet? Or I don't understand. Yeah, well, or you just <laughs> if you're going to sow them in a pot, you would uh, take a book or a, you know a piece of wood and place it over top of the the pot to keep the light out, and just oh, check and it what can, every few days. Right? What um what sort of plants require that? Well, I know off, some off the top of my head is our delphiniums, which is a larkspur. They they need okay. that. Um, there's not a whole lot of them. Most germinate need the light to germinate, but that's an example of all plants are different. And if we go right. back to the stratification, which we were talking about, some need, you know, cold temperatures, so right around freezing or three degrees above, so that's the fridge. And... When you look up instructions on growing seed, oftentimes um, you'll see differences like that, like fridge for a month, freezer for a month, you know, so they go from cool so, to cold. Where's a good spot to get this information when you're dealing with seeds? Like how, where can I go to, to find out the information, a cold spot, fridge, freezer, dark and all that? You, you mentioned, is there a place, is there a book or a manual or something that, because uh, I think you had a manual at the... Um, at the market uh, a couple weeks ago that showed a different, it was a large book. Is that the sort of book that you look up? Yes, I have um, I have a very large one, and it, it has every bit of information as a grower or gardener that you need. I don't bring it to market because it's quite big and, and uh, would be destroyed in, in one season, you know, from using <laughs> it because it's so heavy. You have to have it on your lap. But, um, right. I mean, nowadays you can just Google but, but okay. back in the day, the way I learned things was, and I call this book, it's my Bible. And it's um, now I'm off here in my car where it's nice and quiet. I don't have my book in front of me and I was going to bring it with me, but I didn't. <laughs> but it's, it, it's like an encyclopedia of, of, oh, yeah. of gardening. And now it's time for another testimonial for Chaga Health and Wellness. Okay, here we're here in Lindsay, Ontario, with Rusty, who's up from California and visits us every year. And Rusty has been a faithful Chaga user for a long time. Rusty, maybe you can just tell us about your experience with Chaga. Well, I feel that it's had a significant impact on my health and well-being. Uh, I believe in what I'm doing. Uh, I think that Jerry is very knowledgeable on it. If he says something, I take that very seriously. Uh, <laughs> he has you. spent most of his life in the healthcare field and, uh, and certainly knows what he's talking about. And I like to be around people like that because that's what keeps me healthy. And uh, I'm 80 now, and uh, uh, I'm going to try to enjoy what, I, what I've created with the motorcycle and one thing or another, which will require that I live for at least another 10 years to get back what I've invested <laughs> in my health and wellness. 
So, so you're uh, seeing a you're seeing a big benefit from it, an overall uh, healthy uh, environment. And when when you go back to California next month, you actually take a quite a bit with you back to California, don't you? Oh yes, we're going to be there for eight months, and we don't want to run out. Uh, so we take it back, and we take it every day. And uh, you know, I, I you know, I. Like I say, it's not a problem for me. Right. Uh, so how do you take it, uh, Rusty? I put a, a tablespoon or a teaspoon, rather, uh, in my coffee each morning. Okay. When I brew the coffee. Yep. And I put it in as the coffee's brewing. I put that in with it. Oh, very good. And uh, I put a little bit of cinnamon in with it, too. Right. And uh, then I, I sweeten my coffee because take the bitterness, a little bit of bitterness. I use the chaga. Uh, and uh, uh, maple right. mix. Very good. Uh, that you make up for those that want to be well and stay well. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks very much. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing your Chaga experience with you. And we'll make sure you have a safe trip back to California. Sure enough. All right. Okay. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, sir. My pleasure. <clears throat> we interrupt this program to bring you a special offer from Chaga health and wellness. If you've listened this far and you're still wondering about this strange mushroom that I keep talking about and whether you would benefit from it or not, I may have something of interest to you. To thank you for listening to the show, I'm going to make trying Chaga that much easier by giving you a dollar off all our Chaga products at checkout. All you have to do is head over to our website, ChagaHealthAndWellness.com, place a few items in the cart, and check out with the code CANOPY, C-A-N-O-P-Y. If you're new to Chaga, I'd highly recommend the regular Chaga tea. This comes with 15 tea bags per package, and each bag gives you around five or six cups of tea. Hey, thanks for listening. Back to the episode. I had somebody give me some stinging nettle plants, mm -hmm. and... Um, I'm wondering, what's the best way when you're given plants like that to try and get them to grow? Now, these were about, uh, probably at the time, they were about 18 inches tall. And I've tried a couple. Um, one of them has taken off. I've tried three three separate plots. One has taken off, but the others have not. What is a good way to transplant some of those plants? Even things like, I don't know if you can transplant uh, milkweed or the stinging nettle or others. What's a good way to be able to transplant those to get them to areas where you want them to grow or so long as they're in the right uh, um, soil conditions and light conditions? Yeah, um, with the stinging nettle, it really thrives on rich soil. Right. So high in nitrogen. So, you know, my okay. sandy soil here on our farm, not so much. It's um, So if, if the soil is good for the stinging nettle, you know, full of organic matter and, and nutrients, you'll find that right. it'll take off and and flourish. As far as transplanting, probably the best time to do it is in the spring when you first okay. see growth and lift it and make sure you've right. got your planting hole where it's going um, right. ready. Because a lot of times if you're transplanting, it's it's interesting how quickly the, the, the small root hairs can, can dry out. So if your hole's ready uh -huh. just to, you know, pop it in, your success will right. be higher. Um, again, I, I like using a transplant fertilizer to get it, give it a good start. So that's a fifteen thirty fifteen high phosphorus, and um, 
Yeah, when I did the transplant, because uh, stinging nettle is one of the most nutritious plants, and people utilize yeah. it for a lot of different purposes. Yeah, and it has a, um, a high in um, protein and a lot of beneficial aspects to it. Uh, I believe one of the I can't remember all the details about it because I haven't got enough research into it to give the specifics. But uh, people who are dealing with um, um, lung issues, I believe, no, it's um, it's allergies is one of the key ones oh, was where they're using that. Yeah. But uh, I, and I and I know that uh, I had some questions where I posted some answers regarding um, where do I somebody was asking where do I find wild leeks, and you just mentioned about the soil conditions and that and, and my response to that was where you find trilliums is a good spot where you'll find wild leeks. Yeah. And lo and behold, later the the person responded, "Thank you. That's exactly where I found them." Mm-hmm. So right soil conditions is is very critical, but knowing that, so I've got a lot of mint growing as well. I've got spearmint and peppermint because we do up a mint teas, uh, chaga mint teas and things like that that we're experimenting with. What are the some of the better conditions for mint growing, do you know? For mint? Yes. Full sun, for sure. Full sun. Um, and good drainage. Okay. Uh, as far as nutrition, I think it's it's a plant that'll pretty much grow anywhere because it's quite vigorous. And um, to have good, healthy mint, make sure your density is not too heavy. Like you know, nice open plants, not all planted too close together. That'll keep okay. your foliage because it's the foliage you're going to use for your teas. That'll keep it healthy. Yep. Um, yeah, mint, mint yep. is one of those things that it can it can really uh, be a problem getting into the neighboring plants. It's very vigorous. In oh. fact, a lot of people will plant mint in a pot and then sink the pot so it doesn't escape and end up all over oh. the place. Yeah, I find it interesting. Um, I've got right now the spearmint growing, and, and there's a lot of flowers that uh, are bringing very, very small pollinators. Like They look like little little wee bees about the size of a housefly yep. that are coming in, in in quantities to pollinate a lot of them. Yep. And But uh, the 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 peppermint hasn't flowered yet, and both were about the same time, which I find was interesting and, and learning. So you, you get a lot of different plants that ripen at different times of the years, even in the same family, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Yes? Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. And there's quite a few okay. different mints out there nowadays, eh? Well, yeah, there was chocolate mint, strawberry mint. Uh, of course, there's uh, the peppermint, this, the spearmint, which are fairly well known. Yeah. But a lot of the other ones, which were quite surprising. And I know there's a lot of other like self-heal or heal-all, which is in the mint family as well. Right. Which a lot of people will have right in their own garden or their own yards and not even know it exists. And mm-hmm. actually, um, they make uh, the all-heal, self-heal, make a great tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but maybe you could go into a little bit of the differences between, say, an annual, perennial, and there's there's some that are two and three year plants that last how long? What are they called, and and how do they differentiate? And are they so an annual would be self seeding to come back, yeah. like wild rice and that sort of thing? Well, annuals, yes, um, annuals. Their whole mission is to flower, grow, flower, produce seed all in one season. So right. so. That's their mission. Um, okay. So they will, once they produce their flower and set seed, they die. And then it's the prodigy that comes out of the seed that continues the generations. Biennials normally are two-year-old plants. And when they finish okay. the second year, they usually die. Mind you, if you prevent them from setting 
seed. You can sometimes get them to live for three or four years, like a hollyhock's a good example. So what they usually do, a biennial, they'll grow a rosette, so foliage only, the first year. And then the second year is when they produce a flower and then try to set seed. Um, Perennials are your long-lived friends. They come up every year and they just get better every year as far as uh, Mm -hmm. quality of bloom and size of plants. Um, They can live anywhere from four years. There, there are short-lived right. perennials up to uh, something like a peony. A peony can be around 80 to 100 years. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. <clears throat> well, that's one thing that I always found interesting. And for those that haven't tried it, when the peonies come up in the springtime, the ants come up and eat the sap on the that hold the leaves together over the flower. Mm-hmm. And for those people that have not, try the sap because it is a, it's fantastically sweet. Is it? It has a fantastic... Oh, I could not believe it. I thought, you know, here is something that potentially might be the new sweetener if uh, people started looking into it because it was so interesting. Yeah. 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 Now, there were some plants... Are you familiar with mullins at all? Yes. So I know... A mullins is is considered a biannual in the second year. Mm-hmm. Now, mullin, the plant, um, the leaves are used in teas and for lung issues. So people have breathing issues and things like that. They mullins a lot of that, and and there's a lot of research on that that shows that uh, very very effective. But a mullin is a biannual that uh, most of the time they suggest people harvest the second year, and um, the seeds are self seeding afterwards. So then. Then they come out and very interesting plant I found. Oh, there's interesting. One, a couple of things I know about mullen over the years of just keeping my ears pricked is um, number one, those seeds can stay viable for over 50 years in the ground. Every time the really? soil is turned, mullen is usually one of the things that pops up. You know, if you've got some fallow ground that all of a sudden is worked again. Yep. And those will be one of the ones, and yeah, up to 50 years. And also our Native North Americans, um, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of years yeah. ago, they used the leaves of that plant to line their moccasins. Hmm. No, I had not heard that before. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, try it. Put a leaf in, in, in a pair of your shoes sometimes. It's quite nice. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm going to try that uh uh, well, I haven't seen any mullen that's uh, ready yet to try, but uh, no. that's something I may look at. Yeah. So, Bev, we get a lot of problems now with invasive, well, in species, in plants that are taking over, like strangling dog vine. Mm-hmm. How do you get rid of that? And have you heard about the using the the pickling vinegar salt and actually um, uh, Dawn is what uh, people put in to try and kill that sort of thing. Have you heard any of that? Or what's a good way to get rid of a lot of those ones that are taking over a lot of the areas? Yeah, well, I think this is one of the reasons. There's two reasons why the dog strangling vine is, is a serious threat. is because of the way it produces the seed and the way it spreads. It's like the um, um, monarch butterflies food, the... Oh, the, the, the milkweed. Milkweed. It produces, sorry about that. It produces a little, you know, capsule that opens up and all these little floaties go everywhere. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Now, when that stem of that plant hits the ground, it takes off in probably a dozen different directions. And it's very solid, very hard to pull. 
So eradicating by, by you know, pulling it is not going to do the job. It is effective to do use the glyphosate. I haven't tried it. It's not something I usually use. Most people know it as Roundup. Okay. Um, but apparently it is effective. Uh, I don't recommend it. But right. if you're in a situation where it's either the dog strangling vine or you, you might want to consider it. Um, but the, the the most important thing about the dog strangling vine is that it the vine threatens the uh, monarch butterflies as a species because the butterflies get convinced that it's part of the family that they feed off of. So they lay their eggs oh. on the plant, but the larvae are unable to complete their life cycle and they don't survive. Oh, I did not know that. Yep. Yeah, well, I certainly see strangling dog vine everywhere. Yes. And it's very problematic. I know, well, this morning I was out watering some mint and pulling dog, um, the dog strangling vine out of some of the areas where I've got mint planted. And it just seems to be coming up all the time and everywhere. So I'd heard about this, this um, the pickling vinegar, the salt, mm-hmm. and the, the dawn, and, and a lot of people swear by it, but I haven't tried it yet. And I just wondered. I yeah. think I think it is effective to, to knock the plants off. I don't know whether right. you'll get a, get a kill the first time, but anybody mm. who's interested, it's a, a gallon of white vinegar, and the stronger, yeah. uh, like the pickling vinegar, is seven percent acid. The regular vinegar is five percent. So, and then there is another uh, vinegar out there that's ten percent, and it's usually sold as for for cleaning. So right. I would try either the 7 or the 10 to get an, a, a good, strong, effective. But it's one gallon of white vinegar, one cup of salt, and a tablespoon of the Dawn dish soap. Okay. Well, that's something for people to try. Yeah. Now, Bev, do you know of plants, and I've heard of certain plants that actually keep insects away? Do you, do you know much? Uh, have you heard much about that? Well, or and, and I believe lavender was one of them. Yes, and it's not necessarily the plant that keeps the, like citronella plant is another one for mosquitoes. And lately there's right. been um, um, a lot of popular belief that uh, the lavender does the same job for the mosquitoes. But it's actually the oil in the plants that repel. the. Oh, yeah. um, so I think if, if you could um, find some insect repellent that, that has the oils in them, it, that might be more effective than the plant. Because you have to okay. actually brush up against these plants to get the oils released, which... Oh, I didn't... Yeah, because the, the way that uh, that I had heard was that people were using things like lavender. If you plant lavender, it keeps them away for... I guess they don't like the smell, but that's not what, what I'm hearing from you is that uh, that uh, it's actually the oils in the plant that uh, make the difference. It's not so much the plant itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's where the oils are, but, but to, to get a, a real true effect... I think um, yeah. there's one. We have a vendor at our Lindsay Market who sells a, you know, a, a bug spray that yeah. I find very, very good because it's full of these these oils, the citronella, the lavender, and um, yeah. That's imagine Bonnie? if you were uh, you had a deck full of lavender, you you'd probably see a difference. But I'm not sure whether it would keep them totally away. No, well, just wondered. Yeah. Now. Do you know much about nurse trees and primary growth and secondary growth and ground growth and all that sort of thing? I know and, a little and, bit about about the pioneer species and the way a forest is developed. I find that yeah. very interesting. So, yeah, I know a little, but not 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 a great amount. Um, yeah, it was very interesting when I was minister. I found it very 
surprising because, well, prior to that, I attended some silviculture. Um, there were there were silviculture events in Ontario, and one of the things that I found interesting is if you open a ten foot um, canopy in the canopy in a ten foot circle, mm-hmm. it allows more light to, to promote new growth mm-hmm. into those. Because otherwise, you get almost a monoculture from a lot, and when you see a lot of reforested areas where it's nothing but pine, there's no new growth, there's no food forage base for yep. for animals and things like that, and that's where they come in and do thinning, and they they start to take it down from, uh, I think the it's about eight eight nine thousand stems per hectare down to five down to about two point two thousand five hundred stems per hectare by the time they're at harvestable height for a lot of the pines. But it found it very interesting that things like um wild uh, ginseng or wild leeks or trilliums require that uh, covered canopy in order to promote growth. Mm-hmm. And so you know those are some of the things that I'm not sure a lot of people are, are aware of. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a lot of other plants that that grow in that. Uh, are you familiar with a lot, or have you grown, say, um, ginseng? Well, I know in the deciduous forest, that's where you've got the. I believe they call them ephemerals. Those are the, the like the trilliums, the dogwoods that come up and and they bloom in the sunny spot where the, the canopy it hasn't leafed out yet. So there's all kinds of sunshine, yep. and um, I know that the. Uh, that's why they bloom in the spring is because that's when the sun is there. Yes. And, they and go, then a lot of them. They go dormant, yeah. Yeah, so they're, it's uh, very slow. Like the trillium is is a bulb plant, correct? Yeah. It grows from a bulb? Corn, the same uh, as, corn bulb, yeah. It could be either or, I think. Yeah, and it's the same as um, the wild leeks. Yeah. Uh, we find a lot of that in, in um, sugar bushes, maple bushes. Yes. So that's... We, we harvest a lot of ours. Wild leeks have a lot of beneficial uh, aspects to it as well with with uh, good for the blood and a lot of good circulation issues and things like that. Well, and yeah. you know the jack in the pulpit. It's interesting. Um, if you've got an old forest and then all of a sudden, you know, a tree will, will drop, a big tree, and, you know, yep. drop to the floor to feed the floor eventually. But, but that pocket of sunshine, that's usually where you'll find the jack in the pulpits will show up. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, we've got one at uh, um, our place up um, north of here, about two hours, and it was quite surprising. It was, the jack and pulp in the pulpit was huge. It was like three, four feet tall, yep. Yep. and huge leaves on it, which which was quite surprising. I guess I don't know much about them, uh, whether they have any medicinal applications or not, but it was certainly an impressive plant to look at. Well, when you see so, them that big, Jerry, they're usually very close to the end of their life cycle. Oh, okay. Yeah, unfortunately, hmm. but yeah. But it, it oh, takes them, I bet you, 15 years to get that big. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things is a lot of, how do you get rid of an overabundance of raspberry cane? You just oh. pick it, constantly pull it? Well, you've actually got, to, it, it's just, you have to stay at it, like, because you'll still have them pop up. But where that stem meets the ground, it sends runners out everywhere. And they're kind of an orangey color, so they're easy to see. And you almost yes. have to pick those runners up and follow them as far as you can. But then there will be little runners coming out from the main runners. And so they're, they're difficult to, to get rid of raspberries. Um, You could try maybe putting down some black plastic and try to bake the area maybe the heat will will okay. you know get rid of that um, that's a 
when I have plant a new garden, that's usually how I, I um, kill the site is with black plastic. So you just take a black tarp and put it down and yeah. and leave it there for how, for how long? Does well, it... minimum three months. Oh, three months? It takes that long? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So those runners, are rhizomes, are they not? Um, from the from the uh, from the the um, raspberry cane. Yeah, I, yeah, Is they it? would be considered a rhizome. Um, I always think of rhizomes as maybe a heavier material as far as plant tissue, but okay. they're 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 actually root hairs that that just and then they'll they'll throw up a, another cane, you know, down the line. And if you pull them up, you can see all the baby canes are attached to that. It's like oh, yeah. they're as thin as hairs. Unless it's an older plant, and they get a bit heavier. But uh, okay. raspberries are a problem to get rid of for sure. Hmm. You can dig, but you can dig every year for. Plan on doing it for about five years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've been at it for a while, and they still still keep coming back. Yeah. But uh, so when when you take your your black tarp, I guess you could develop a food plot for animals if you put the tarp out kill it off, and then plant certain plants that would be self-seeding on an ongoing basis? What would be good food plot ones that would be self-seeding or or perennials so they're constantly coming back that you don't have to take care of a lot? So these, these so even when you're talking food plot, you're talking about like our native animals, like deer and... Yep, and absolutely, such. or you know, grouse or anything like that 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 come around and, oh, and feed yeah. on a lot of these things, or or rabbits, or any of the the animals, or even um, um, some of that stuff. So a lot of people are putting food plots out. So I I plant a lot of uh, white clover and red clover in certain areas. Yes, yeah, and but are there some other ones that you would recommend, or how would well, you go about I'm, developing? There's a, always um, some of the native ones that I I thought would probably be a good in addition to that are um you know your service berries right canada plum um okay there's uh the northern catalpa i'm not sure if those pods are edible i've seen damage on them like there are some something feeds on them but i can't tell whether it's a larva or not by the time i find the pods um yeah but Hmm. you know there's the elderberry sumacs but are you thinking uh, more uh, like a shorter, like even the wild apple trees are great for the deer? Yeah, well, for a food plot, a, a lot of things like um, the red clover, I find, is is something that uh, um, has a tendency to draw a lot of animals into the area. So more more annual, biennial types of things, eh? As yeah. opposed to shrubs and trees. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't yeah. know too much about the food plots, actually. Um but I can see it okay. being a, a there's um, squirrel corn, which is uh, Dutchman's breeches. Okay. And I know that um, I had a nice little patch of it, and and the uh, squirrels got into it and cleaned it up. So no more oh, okay. uh, Dutchman's breeches for me. So maybe in 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 a large bush that is food for for you know things other than the squirrels, and also mm-hmm. um, you know back to the jack in the pulpits. Like the, there's yes. something the squirrels will feed on those little, uh, you know, the seed on that day, eh? the little corms. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine may apple as well. There's a lot of animals that uh, once it's ripe, it's, it's supposed to be good. And yeah, actually, but there's uh, only we, one part of it, right? It's just the, the right. fruit. 
Yeah, the rest of the plant is quite poisonous. Yeah, yeah, and it needs yeah. to be. And that was another thing. Even milkweed pods, I've, I've um, seen. Although I've not tried them, I've seen a lot of individuals who've consumed milkweed pods at certain times of the year, mm-hmm. which are supposed to be very tasty. Before it's when they're very young. Uh-huh. Now, one of the one of the other thing, uh, Bev, is um, you mentioned about. Um, I gave you some weir berry seeds. It was a a special pepper from. Guatemala, mm-hmm. and you had mentioned that it you need to put it on the fridge. It needs warmth from the bottom up. Bottom heat, yeah, for germinating okay. peppers. Yeah. So peppers need. I, I kind of explain that. Then I don't well, get a full it, picture of that. Peppers are uh, originated in you know areas like Mexico, and so they they're not uh, similar to you know a lot of the things that we grow up here, which may not need bottom heat, but they need heat to germinate. So um, you can use the top of your fridge, you know, put your hand on it and feel if if there's warmth there. And uh, when you sow your seeds in a tray, just pop the tray up there and, you know, check it every two or three days, make sure it doesn't dry out. Because if there isn't a certain amount of warmth there, your tray will dry out quicker. Um, And then when it germinates, you can take it off because you're going to need sunlight right away or those seedlings will get all leggy on you. But uh, I have, uh, because I grow a lot of peppers now, especially the hot peppers, um, Mm -hmm. I I have bought, it's it's like a a, a mat, an electric mat that plugs in. Oh, yes, yeah. And holds two trays nicely. So that's what I use. And that way I can keep an eye on them. And because if they dry out and they're half germinated, you probably lose the whole flat. Oh, okay. So um, maybe just kind of go over what's the difference between organic and non-organic and how do you – okay, just kind of walk us through what an organic or a non-organic – and actually even if you can include some of the – what are they, heritage or heirloom plants? Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess it depends on who you're talking to. Now um, I get the distinct impression to be organic, you have to be certified. You know, okay. um, I, I'm i not sure whether I agree with that because you can be organic and not be certified. Do you know what I mean? So it's a sticky little Absolutely. term to yeah. use these days. But the, yes. um, the term organic means that it's grown on something that's grown on soil where no prohibitive substances for at least three years prior to harvest have been used. So that okay. means not, nothing like synthetic fertilizers or pesticides or hormones um, or GMO plants. Okay. Um, so. so myself, I don't grow um, other than the transplant fertilizer when I first plant. And like I, could, I explained to my customers, I'm not certified organic, but I do grow right. naturally. Like I don't use... Uh, any uh, synthetic fertilizers other than the seedlings for their first, you know, okay. shot of life. And uh, right. I think you can get away with a lot of, um, like, your bug levels. That's one thing I say to people. I said, you know, bugs have got to eat, too. Don't panic yep. when you see bugs on your plants. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's all, it's just when the population of these bugs gets out of control. And oftentimes, aphids is a good example. You can just use a oh. good blast of water and and knock them right off because they're very soft bodied, and that usually looks after them. 
Well, I, I mentioned the weirberries, and I had a friend of mine that uh, those seeds that I gave you, and they were just filled with aphids. And mm-hmm. uh, aphids eventually killed the plant. Uh, it just could not, could not. I tried just about everything to get rid of them. Yeah. Even bringing in some ladybugs that were um, basically in hibernation because it was in the wintertime when I got it mm-hmm. in no, about November. So was and, that in? Uh, sorry, go ahead. It, it was indoors. Yeah, it, it was. was indoors. And so, and it was just aphids all over the place. Wow. So I was reluctant to take it outside because the, the plant was from Guatemala. Right. Uh, originally, so I figured it wouldn't be very good in this cold climate. But uh, eventually I killed it off. So, yeah. So bugs are normal. Just don't get an overabundance of them that uh, end up and that's how you it's deal all with part all of the those different yeah, you know they're they're yeah. here. We're here. We all work together. I don't panic about bugs at all anymore. Yeah, no. So, so Bev, heirloom plants. Now, I have to say that a lot of the times when I buy tomatoes now, they just have have the flavor that I'm used to that I used to like. You know, getting them right from the garden, and they have that wonderful uh, have a tomato sandwich. When they're picked, but when I'm buying tomatoes, they don't have any taste of them at all. No. So heirlooms, would that be some of the, and what does it mean to be an heirloom? So heirloom plants, they're, they're all open pollinated. So that means there's, uh, there's no, no one hand pollinating and controlling the parentage. But right. that, that's only going to affect the seed, but they are all open pollinated. And so these seeds that are produced on these open pollinated plants, they're what they call true to type. So they're going to be identical to the parent. Okay. And that is passed on naturally. Like it's it's just the way the plants are. So they are actually living artifacts. And like they're just like a reservoir of genetic diversity. And okay. so you can go many generations. These old varieties, they've been passed on from family to generation after generation after generation. And they haven't changed. Mm-hmm. So they, they have that old-time distinct flavor. Now, they do have some qualities that aren't great. They don't have as long of a shelf life. The hybrids have been bred for, you know, commercial production, for right. uh, lasting well when they're, they're shipped and for long distances and such. But yes. um, many of the heirloom varieties are fruits and vegetables. A lot of them are, you know, ones you don't even know that are heirloom. You know, okay. they've just been around so long. Like bush beefsteak is a good example in the tomato family. Mm-hmm. It's an heirloom, been around for ages. And we just, and it's probably one of my number one sellers as far as the heirlooms. Oh, but they okay. do, they do have a good quality of flavor, the heirlooms. Yeah, that's, it's very concerning when uh, I'm, my belief is that for looks and for size and quickly growing, and shipping, like you said, rather than taste. Yep. And I think uh, a lot more focus on taste would be a lot better for the industry, but that's an opinion of mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bev, one last question I want to ask you is, um, what are some good natural wild plants to plant under the canopy to provide uh, food for bees, say? So within the forest setting, as opposed to open land, um well, these are some of the plants that I mentioned to you for the food plot. So the service berry right. is, is good. Uh, right. And the Canada plum, eastern red bud, and the northern catalpa. Okay. Uh, indigo bush. 
And one of the ones we grow have a lot of here, and I love it because the bloom is so long, is the um, eastern flowering dogwood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I know though. I dogwoods I see pretty reg quite a bit around. Yeah, yep. but they're they're heavy in bloom. Eh? It's just not not a few single flowers. Like there's quite a heavy bloom on on them. So they're they're good and the bloom lasts for a while and then followed up by the berry, right? Yes. Yeah. And um meadowsweet is another one, which is philectrum. Okay. Yeah. It's a tall plant with an umbral. So again, many tiny flowers. The bees oh. like to have a little spot to to rest, eh? I find. I I'm not an expert on bees. We had uh, Paul Kelly on. He's one of the leading researchers in North America, and and have found it fascinating. And, mm-hmm. and there's still a lot, so much more to to learn about bees. Now we can help them out. Yes, yes, that's well, great. Well, thanks for Bev. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate that. How do people get in touch with you if they have any questions or follow up or uh, want to try your uh, amazing garlic or the tomatoes uh, when they come about? And how does uh, one get in touch with you? Well, I am at both the Lindsay Markets on uh, Saturday morning, 7 till 1 on Victoria Avenue downtown. And also at Wilson Fields on Thursdays, 10 till 3. You'll always find me there every Thursday. And uh, most of the markets in town, they run from the first week of May until at least Thanksgiving. The downtown market runs right through to the end of October. Or they can contact me in my email address, which is kingswharfgarden at gmail.com. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And we really uh, learned a lot about uh, things to do and, and how, once again, to... Work better with everything under the canopy. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. everybody, I'm Angelo Viola. And I'm Pete Bowman. Now, you might know us as the hosts of Canada's Favorite Fishing Show, but now we're hosting a podcast. That's right. Every Thursday, Angela and I will be right here in your ears, bringing you a brand new episode of Outdoor Journal Radio. Hmm. Now, what are we going to talk about for two hours every week? Well, you know there's going to be a lot of fishing. I knew exactly where those fish were going to be and how to catch them, and they were easy to catch. Yeah, but it's not just a fishing show. We're going to be talking to people from all facets of the outdoors. From athletes. All the other guys would go golfing. Me and Garth and Turk and all the Russians would go fishing. To scientists. But now that we're reforesting and letting things it's the perfect transmission environment for Lyme disease. To chefs. If any game isn't yeah. cooked properly. Marinated. Or you will taste it. And whoever else will pick up the phone. Wherever you are, Outdoor Journal Radio seeks to answer the questions and tell the stories of all those who enjoy being outside. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How did a small-town sheet metal mechanic come to build one of Canada's most iconic fishing lodges? I'm your host, Steve Nidswicki, and you'll find out about that and a whole lot more on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's newest podcast, Diaries of a Lodge Owner.
But this podcast will be more than that. Every week on Diaries of a Lodge Owner, I'm going to introduce you to a ton of great people, share their stories of our trials, tribulations, and inspirations. Learn and have plenty of laughs along the way. Meanwhile, we're sitting there bobbing along, trying to figure out how to catch a bass. And we both decided one day we were going to be on television doing a fishing show. My hands get sore a little bit when I'm reeling in all those bass in the summertime, but that's might be for more fishing than it was punching. You so confidently you said, hey, Pat, have you ever eaten a drum? Find Diaries of a Lodge Owner now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.